This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. So open your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 1. Acts 1, if you're new today, we have been since Easter in a new series that we're calling Life in the Spirit. <clears throat> so, after the resurrection of Jesus, the next major event that happened in the history of the church is that the Holy Spirit was poured out. And so, what we did in beginning the series is that we went back to the Gospels and we saw that a major theme in the teaching of Jesus is that Jesus promised that this was going to happen. He said that after His ascension, that the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out. Now, we're coming to Acts. And so today, we're going to be in Acts 1, and we're going to see that this promise is about to be fulfilled. That the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, is about to be poured out so that we, as followers of Christ, can be clothed with power. Clothed with power. Acts chapter 1, and we're going to look this morning at verses 1 through 8. So if you follow along in your copy of God's Word. Luke says in the first book, and so the first book that he's talking about there is his gospel, the gospel of Luke. Okay, so I know in your Bibles the gospel of John comes between Luke and Acts, but really when you think about these two books, think about going straight from the 24th chapter of Luke to the first chapter of Acts, because they go together. They're really, they're really two volumes of the same work. So when Luke talks about the first book, he's talking about the Gospel of Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus means lover of God, so this could have been written to one person who is the lover of God, or it could have been written in, just in general to, to people who are lovers of God. God, okay? Um, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Now this promise was the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's what we've been talking about in John 14, John 16. This was the promise that the Spirit was going to be poured out. To wait for the promise of the Father, which he he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. 
So, Father, we pray that you would take your word that we've just read and that you would help us by the power of the Spirit to understand it and help us to apply it. Father, we dare not try to live the Christian life in our own strength or seek to do ministry in our own strength. We pray that you would give us the humility to place ourselves in just a broken way before you and understand that we have to do that clothed with the power of the Spirit. We can, we can only do life as your disciples, um, whether individually or corporately together as a church, if we're clothed with the power of your Spirit. And so we pray that you would speak to us today. We pray that you would work in our hearts, that you would produce just a real humility in us that we would be ready to receive what you have to give us and to walk in your power. Speak to us now during this time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was on Interstate 85, and I had some extra time. And so I was passing by the, the Billy Graham Museum. And so I decided to take the exit and get off. And I'm so glad... I did, because you get to see where Dr. Graham was born and raised. He was raised on a dairy farm, and it's now kind of a suburban type of area. But you can see the house where he was raised, and there's a museum there. And my favorite part of the museum, far and away, was that you walked into a room, and you felt like you were inside of this tent. This was the tent that was placed on the corner of Washington Boulevard and Hill Street in Los Angeles in 1949. And night after night, for many weeks, Billy Graham preached in this tent. And the Spirit of God was poured out. Many people came to Christ during those meetings, one of whom was a guy named Louis Zamperini. Just had a movie made about him, Unbroken in the past year, and there was a book that was written about him. He was a World War II hero, and before that, um, an Olympic uh, track star. And this is Laura Hillenbrand's book, Unbroken, which I highly commend to you. But in this book, she tells in the most beautiful way the story of the night when Louis Zamperini came to Christ in that very tent that we just saw a, a picture of. Well, you know, Billy Graham is uh, beloved by many, many people around the world, but he has not been without his critics, um, both outside the church um, and even people within the church, and especially early in his ministry, there were a lot of critics, and when he first got going, <clears throat> there was one uh, prominent church leader in particular who in the early days of Billy Graham's ministry, he, he made the statement to the press, Billy Graham has set back the cause of evangelism 200 years. And when Billy Graham, uh, the reporters told him, they said, you know, so-and-so said, you've set back the cause of evangelism 200 years. He said, and he wasn't trying to be smart when he said it. He was just, he was just speaking from his heart. But when they said, this guy said, you've set the cause of evangelism back 200 years, Billy Graham said, well... I'd hope to set it back 2,000 years. In other words, I want to see the burning flame 
of the early church recaptured. I mean, how exciting would it be to be a part of something like that? In the fall of 1989, it was a real turning point in my life. That was really the time when God just definitively worked in my life, and uh, I knew that I was called to preach. And I remember one day I had some time uh, during that fall, and I just set aside some time, blocked out some time, and I did something that I would really commend to you. I sat down and I read in a single sitting all 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And I just remember what a pulse-pounding experience that was just to see how the Spirit could work in the lives of believers and, and in their life together as a church. And it can happen again if we're clothed with the power of the Spirit. So we want to talk about that today. So in Acts 1, 1 through 8, I want us to see two things about being clothed with the power of the Spirit. And the first is this, the focus of power. The focus of power. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 again. Luke says in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now you notice here that it says before Jesus ascended that he gave commands to the church. We really don't have the option in picking and choosing what the focus of the church is to be. Because Jesus has commanded us what our focus is to be. Jesus has given us marching orders, very clear marching orders, commands about what our focus is to be. And we we see that, of course, in the Great Commission. Just before He ascends to heaven, Jesus tells us, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, the imperative command in Matthew 28, 19 and 20 is make disciples. There are three participles that flow from this command, and we're going to talk about them. But the command, the imperative command is make disciples. Disciples are learners. They are followers of Christ. Now, none of us as disciples have learned all that we desire to learn. Um, None of us follows Him as well as we would like to follow Him. We are all in process. Okay, we haven't arrived. All of us are just people who are under construction Okay, we're all very imperfect disciples, but a disciple is someone who, who ser- sincerely desires to learn about Christ and to follow Christ. And part of being a disciple is that you desire to make other disciples. And so really what we should think about when we think about the, the imperative focus of the church is that we're to make disciples who make disciples. Now, he tells us how to do that. He unpacks it some by the use of three participles here. And the participles are going, baptizing, and teaching. 
Okay, so let's look at them one by one. First of all, Jesus says to go. He says we're to go. We're to go where? He says, go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And in Acts 1.8, uh, Jesus uh, talks about that even more when he talks about where we're to do it. He says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So in other words, Jesus tells these early followers, you start where you are, which is in that case, in their case it was Jerusalem, okay, and then it expands out like in concentric circles into uh, Judea and then Samaria, but then you don't stop there, you're to go to the uttermost part of the earth. So we begin in our Jerusalem. Okay, and that's the people that God has placed in our lives. This is our family, okay, our relatives, our, our neighbors, the people that we work with, the people that we uh, go to Little League baseball games with, people we go to the gym with or do recreation with, um, people we go to school with. Okay, it's people that God has put in our lives that we know. Now listen. We have a God who never wastes His servants' time. And so we can be certain that God has put each one of us as followers of Christ, He has put certain people in our lives that need to know about Him and that He has, he has called upon us to, to reach, to share the gospel with, to, to, to love, to pray for. So what do we do in their lives? Last week we talked about praying for people who don't yet know Christ. Praying for them by name, persevering in prayer for them repeatedly over a period of years uh, if it takes that. So we intercede for them. We pray for them because we know that only the Holy Spirit ultimately can open their heart and draw them uh, to Christ. We, you know, we can't do that. We're only vessels. Okay, it's the Holy Spirit that, that opens their hearts and enables them to respond. So we pray for them, we love on them, um, you know, be the kindest person in their lives, be the most loving person, be the most servant-hearted person that they know. And as we do that, we don't hide who we are. You know, we don't hide our faith. Um, and we'll have plenty of opportunities to speak to them about the good news of, of Jesus. Okay, So these are people that we know. People, our, our Jerusalem is the people that, that are in our lives, that God has put there, that need to know about, about Christ. So, but, but we don't stop there. Okay, the, the, the commission that Jesus has given us doesn't stop with the people that, that we know. He tells us to go beyond that. Okay, so our Judea and Samaria would be like, you know, Virginia and, and North America. And then to the end of the earth, the call is to reach every people group on earth with the gospel. Now, we can't individually do that. Here's really good news. If you're a part of this church family, there's an opportunity for you to touch literally the world with the gospel. We are blessed to have a church that is incredibly unselfish when it comes to missions, when it comes to giving. And so just in your normal giving, week by week to our church budget, a generous part of that goes to reach people far beyond 
our, our local community. It goes to, uh, to, to, to plant churches in Virginia and in North America. Um, I have personal friends that are, have been on the receiving end of this. And so you know, we're planting churches in North America, uh, penetrating into cities in North America with very little uh, gospel work going on, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. We support a force of 5,000 missionaries that are, are, are pushing back darkness, that are penetrating into the, the most lost people groups on earth, people groups with little or no access to the gospel. I was blessed to serve for four years as a trustee with the International Mission Board and just to see up close the amazing work that's happening through the IMD. So just you know, through our normal week-by-week giving, and then in this church on top of that, through our special offerings like Annie Armstrong, Lottie Moon, State Missions offerings, um, you know, we, we get to, to touch people by sending others that we can never touch ourselves. So Jesus tells us to go. And if you can't personally go, then send others who can go. In our church family, we are a part of that. And we're also directly related to missionaries that, that are a part of our church family, that are, are part of our, our life together. So people like uh, the chapels in Thailand and the shepherds in India uh, and Laurie Gardner in Cambodia and the Swains in Israel um, and, and on and on. And the shot, um, we get to pray for them. We know them. In some cases, we get to send teams to help and to bless them. So through praying, giving, and going we get to touch the world with the gospel. So that's the first participle. He says you are to go. The second is, is to baptize. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Now, baptism signifies what? It's the beginning of the Christian life. It signifies the new life that we have in Christ. Paul says in Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the, from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So, baptism represents new life in Christ. It's the beginning of the Christian life. How does that happen? How do we see people baptized? It's as we go forth into our community, into the, the lives of the people, just like we talked about before, okay? Our family members, our friends our neighbors, the people that God has placed in our lives, people we work with, go to school with, okay, as we have the opportunity to share with them, invite them you know, to, to come and hear more about Christ, we're going to see people come to know Christ. And listen, this is part of our calling, is to be involved, to care for the souls of, of people. You know, Jesus says at, at the very beginning of his ministry, one of the first things that, that Jesus said was, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. We have to ask the question, if we're not fishing, how closely are we following? <laughs> because Jesus says to follow me means that you care about people. You care about their spiritual condition. You, you care that they, would, that they would come to hear the good news and, and come to know me the way that you have. We care about people. I, I love there's a scene in, in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol where um, this guy, Ebenezer Scrooge, Trujan, most of you know the story. You know, this is a guy 
who's lived his whole life for himself. I mean, he's been, he's just, you know, he's lived his whole life just bowing down before a full-length mirror and worshiping himself. It's been all about him. And one night he has this dream and he's visited by his former business partner, a guy named Jacob Marley. And this guy has been dead, dead for years. Um, and so, you know, he's, he comes back to Scrooge in this, this dream and he says, look, I, I wasted my life. Cause, and you're wasting your life because it's it's it was all about me. I lived selfishly. I didn't care about people. Um, and you're making the same mistake. And Scrooge says to him, but Jacob, you're a good man of business. And Jacob Marley rattles his chains and he roars back at Scrooge, business, mankind was my business. Jesus says that if you're his follower, that no matter what your job is, okay, whether you're, you know, however you serve, you know, whatever, whatever vocation you're in, if you're a stay-at-home mom, or whatever you do, okay, that ultimately we have a calling beyond our vocation that we're in the people business, that we care about people, that we care about them enough for them to come to know Jesus. Follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. You're going to care about people. You're going to care about the souls of people. You're going to want to see people come to know Christ, okay, and be baptized. So that's the second thing, going, baptizing, and then teaching. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Now, this is what my evangelism professor, Delos Miles, called the second half of evangelism. The second half of the Great Commission because, yes, we want to see people come to faith in Christ and be baptized. But if we drop people at that point, if we just kind of abandon them as new Christians and we don't teach them and we don't help them get grounded in God's Word, then we're not really fulfilling the Great Commission. We're fulfilling half of it, but we're just getting people to the 50-yard line. The touchdown is when they become disciples themselves. So we want to teach people. Come alongside them, uh, teach, do life on life, so that they come to the point where they themselves are reproducing disciples. Okay, where they're out making disciples themselves. Disciples who make disciples. Now, we can do all kinds of good things as a church, but if that is not our focus, if our focus is not on making disciples... And, of course, part of being a disciple is that you make other disciples. So the, really the goal is making disciples who make disciples. If that's not our focus, listen, we've got, we're missing the focus, okay? Jesus is clear. This is the imperative command. He says, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples. You know, there's an ancient Greek proverb that says, The fox knows many things, but the hedgehog knows one big thing, okay? Um, this is focus. There's a book that was written a few years ago, and it's actually a business book, but it's called Good to Great. And this guy, Jim Collins, he looked at different uh, corporations across America that had sort of made the transition from doing good things to really doing great things. And one of the principles, one of the common denominators that he saw in these corporations was that they incorporated what Collins calls the hedgehog principle. And that is that these corporations knew what they were supposed to lock in on 
and they did it. And they were focused, relentlessly focused on that. Collins says this, Foxes are scattered and diffused, never integrating their thinking into one overall concept or unifying vision. Hedgehogs, on the other hand, simplify a complex world into a single organizing idea, a basic principle or concept that unifies and guides everything. Now, for the church of Jesus Christ, our hedgehog principle is make disciples. Okay? Make disciples who make disciples. That's the focus. The focus of power. But, we have no chance to carry out that focus without the second part. And that is the flame of power. The flame is the Holy Spirit. We're going to see in Acts 2 that the the Spirit comes to them at Pentecost as a flame. We cannot carry out our mission. We can't even live the Christian life without the flame of power, and that's the Spirit of God. So, in verse verse 8, Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Now remember, Acts is the second of two volumes. Luke 24 to Acts 1. Okay? I know in your Bibles John comes between, okay? But, but when you think about it, think immediately from Luke 24 to Acts 1. What happens at the end of the Gospel of Luke in chapter 24? One of the last things that we see is that Jesus says, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What's that promise? It's the Holy Spirit. That's what we saw in John 14, John 16. Jesus said the Spirit is coming. He fulfills His promise at Pentecost. Behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now, once again, in verse 8, Jesus is talking about power. He says that the power, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power for what? Well, he tells us. Power to be his witnesses. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you and you will be witnesses. Now, what does that word really mean? When This is originally written in the first century. Okay, a witness was like a herald who would go out and announce when they had a new emperor or a new king. So think about this. In the first century, let's say they got got a new Caesar in the Roman Empire. Well, think about how spread out the Roman Empire was. I mean, it was basically the whole Mediterranean world. No internet. No um, TV. Not even any newspapers. There's no printing press at this point. So how is the news going to get out that we have a king? They send out heralds, witnesses. They, They would send them into every town, every city. They would come into town and their job was to announce the news. We have a king. Okay. With the resurrection and the enthronement 
of Jesus, the ascension and enthronement of Jesus, Jesus is now Lord of the world. He is Lord of the world. Every person in the world will one day stand before Him as King and as Judge. And He's given us the mission to go forth as witnesses, as heralds, and to announce to people in our lives, yes, and to go or to send others who can go to every people group on earth and to announce this news. Jesus reigns. He is raised. He is enthroned. He is Lord of the world. And Jesus offers amnesty to His rebel subjects. And that's us, because we're all rebels. Okay, we have all sinned against our King. We have spurned Him. We have not treasured Him or trusted Him or loved Him as we should. We're all sinners. But, here's good news. Christ died for sins, took our sins upon Himself, was raised from the dead. He's Lord of the world. And He's calling upon you to turn to Him in repentance and in faith so that one day you'll stand before Him as Savior and not as Judge. Now, that is the message that we are to go forth and announce to the world as witnesses. Okay, but can we do that on our own? Can we possibly do that in our own strength? No, and we're not called to do it in our own strength. This is, Jesus gives us His Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. As we go forth, okay, whether we're on a mission trip or whether we're on a mission, the daily mission trip that we should be on, okay, that means when you roll out of bed every day, think of yourself as a missionary, that you're on mission. All right, look at life. Look at relationships in your life. Look at people. Okay, as, as one who's on a mission, Okay, as we do that day by day, we are not called to do that in our own strength. We have the power of the Spirit of God who is with us, working, working through us as we go forth, as Christ heralds. We must have His power. So N.T. Wright says this, The task of the church can't be attempted without the Spirit. I've sometimes heard Christian people talk as though God, having done what He's done in Jesus, now wants us to do our part by getting on with things in our own steam. But that is a tragic misunderstanding. It leads to arrogance, burnout, or both. Without God's Spirit, there is nothing we can do that will count for God's kingdom. Without God's Spirit, the church simply can't be the church. Now, some of the witnesses throughout the history of the church can teach us about this because they have learned. They've come to a point in their lives, and when you read Christian biographies, you see this. They reach a point in life where they just come to understand, you know what, I can't do this. I cannot do this. I can't even live for Christ, let alone minister in His name in my own strength. And there's a humility and there's a brokenness because they, they, and, they, and what happens is people reach a point 
And every Christian, you know, who, who is effective for God, I think has to reach this point where you reach a point where you exchange your own weakness for God's strength. I was reading about D.L. Moody, and, um, who was used so greatly in the 1800s. Moody started this amazing ministry in Chicago. He went into the poorest area of Chicago, a place that was so bleak and dark, hardly anybody would even go there. And he started this Sunday school for kids um, that nobody cared about. Um, But it was an amazing ministry. Well, then in 1871, Chicago burned to the ground. And all of this ministry, it was just totally wiped out And so Moody was discouraged. He'd gone to New York to try to raise funds and rebuild. And one day, D.L. Moody was walking. He was on this fundraising trip in New York. He's actually walking down Wall Street, discouraged. I mean, just just downcast because of you know what was happening and feeling overwhelmed. I mean, how in the world are we we ever going to, to to rebound? And at that point, that point of weakness in his life, the Holy Spirit just came upon him in such a powerful way that he had to find a room to just to be alone with God. And Moody tells about what happened next. He says, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. I can only say God revealed himself to me and I had such an experience of his love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. We talked about Billy Graham earlier in October of 1946. He was in Wales um, preaching and he was ministering with a friend, Stephen Olford, and they were in a little town called Pontypridd, Wales, and this, old, this hotel that was like an old stone building, dreary room, but they, they took two days just to get alone with their Bibles and to pray together. And on the second day, the, the Spirit of God just flooded into that room. And Billy Graham always looked back on that day as just a turning point, really, in, in his in his ministry. And, so, and see, this is repeated. When you, when you read the biographies of Christians, you see this is the pattern. And it's the pattern in every Christian's life, whether, you know, it's just, just in any believer, we, we have to reach a point of brokenness and humility where we understand, you know what, this is not about me. This is not about me trying to do this in my own strength anymore because I can't. I'm incapable. I'm inadequate. And you reach a point where it's a point of dependence upon the Spirit's power. Because look, we're only vessels. That's all we are. And we can't save anybody. We can't open anybody's heart. We, we talked about that last week. Only the Spirit can do that. And we, we, we come to understand who we are and who we're not. Okay? And so we get out of God's role. Let God be God. Depend upon the Spirit's power. And when we do that, we become more usable for God than we've ever been. Now listen, the experience of people like Moody and Graham is very instructive because, yes, they had powerful spiritual encounters with God. But it was not experience 
for the sake of experience, was it? What God was doing in their lives was preparing them to go out and minister. It wasn't just an experience as an end in itself. That was like a catalyst to go out and touch the lives of others. It's about, it's about the Spirit working not just in us but through us. Again, N.T. Wright says the Holy Spirit and the task of the church. The two walk together hand in hand. We can't talk about them apart. Despite what you might think from some excitement in the previous generation about new spiritual experiences, God doesn't give people the Holy Spirit in order to let them enjoy the spiritual equivalent of a day at Disneyland. Of course, if you're downcast and gloomy, the fresh wind of God's Spirit can and often does give you a new perspective on everything and above all grants a sense of God's presence, love, comfort, and even joy. But the point of the Spirit is to enable those who follow Jesus to take into all the world the news that He is Lord. Now, this brings us to something else. And it's something that we usually overlook. We can so easily skip this in the first chapter of Acts. But it's this, and we see it in verse 1. Luke says in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. You see that? What is the implication of that? All that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, Jesus is continuing to do and teach through His Spirit-led, Spirit-empowered followers. It's not over. Okay, it doesn't end at the end of the Gospel of Luke. It doesn't end at the end of Acts 28. It goes on. In fact, what did we see in John 14 and 16? Jesus said, even what? Greater works will you do when the Spirit comes. Okay? Greater than just my physical presence with you. It's going to be greater. It continues now. Yeah, I've seen some movies, some sequels to movies that probably should have never been made. Okay? Um, quit while you're ahead. Okay? The original was really good. The sequel was a letdown. But this sequel... This sequel's it's not only not a letdown. Jesus says this is going to be greater. And here's the deal in this sequel. In this movie, we're not sitting there watching the movie, or shouldn't be. Okay, in this, in this movie, this sequel, we are actors. We are a part of this story. We're a part of this drama. It is currently underway. And the living Lord invites you to be a part of that. Listen, your life is meant to count for Christ. You're a part of this. You've been placed here on this earth for great significance for Him. This church gets to be a part of this. This is one of the most exciting times 
to be a follower of Christ. I know there's a lot going wrong in our country and in the world. But you know what? This is one of the most exciting times to be a follower of Jesus. We get to live it. We're a part of it. And may we see by God's grace, may we see in our lives and in our church the Spirit working in us and through us as we're clothed with this power. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity that we have as believers and as a church family to be a part of your incredible work in this world, that we get to be caught up in this this story, this drama of redemption of the gospel. And as you've you've placed us in in different different places in our lives, um, different, different places, different circles of friends and different spiritual gifts and different backgrounds and experiences and personalities, we know that you're going to use each one of us to make a difference for you. And so, Father, we pray that you would humble us, that you would deliver us from thinking that we can live for you in our own power, that we can make a difference in the lives of others on our own. We pray that you would make us humble enough to constantly depend upon you and just exchange our weakness for your strength, day by day, moment by moment. And help us to wake up each day and understand that our lives count, that we're on a mission for you, the most significant mission that there's ever been, and that we're a part of it. Help us to look at life in that way and to go forth in your strength and not our own. Father, I pray for anyone here today who came into this room not knowing Christ. I pray that they would believe this this good news that has been proclaimed, that Jesus died for sins, that he rose from the dead, that there is forgiveness and new life in his name through repentance and faith. And Father, I pray that someone would, would, would walk in through that open door today and come to know you. We pray that you would help all of us to be in the process as disciples of making other disciples, thinking about life beyond ourselves, living for something much greater than ourselves, for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. Um, And as we sing today, if you'd like to just pray with someone, just about knowing more about a relationship with Christ or being a part of this church family or just a need in your life that you need somebody to pray with, you're invited to come. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. 
You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.